Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. I'm Pat Cummins. I'm Josh Hazelwood. I'm Lisbon Kowaja. I'm Mitch Marsh. I'm Darren Lehman. I'm Mitch Stark, and you're listening to the Unplayable Podcast. This is the Unplayable Podcast. On this week's episode, we recap the historic day-night women's ashes test with former England bowler Isha Gua and talk all things men's ashes with our regular guest of the summer, Mike Hussey. We start with Mr. Cricket by asking him just how pumped he is for the ashes, which is less than two weeks away. Well, it's very exciting. This is uh, what, well, from a player's point of view, this is what every player uh, wants to be involved in. And then from a spectator's point of view, this is the, the biggest series that uh, is uh, is. is ever around really so um i think there's a lot of excitement um there's a, there's a, a lot of speculation going around i guess as well with who's going to play who's not going to play what is england going to dish up they've got a few players that we've never even heard of before um so yeah it, it's sort of a lot of mystery around the, around the tour uh, at, at this stage all right let's get stuck into it we'll start with the number six uh, and that's probably been the biggest point of conjecture since Bangladesh, I would dare say. A lot of contenders, do they pick a batter or do they pick a, a batter who bowls a bit or do they pick a genuine all-rounder? The names have been thrown out like Hilton Cartwright, Sean Marsh, Moses Enriquez, batters like Curtis Patterson, Jake Lehman, Cameron Bancroft, for example, Glenn Maxwell, the incumbent. For you, Mike, who bats at number six <laughs> for the first test at the Gabba? Oh, yeah, you're starting with a tough question, aren't you? I don't know which way the selectors are going to go. If, if it was up to me personally, I'm I'm really confident with our bowling attack. I think our bowling looks really strong. So from my point of view, I'm not as confident with our batting. So I want to shore up the batter, batting as much as I possibly can. So out of all those names that you've mentioned, and look, we could probably argue over a over about an hour or two hours or maybe even longer about who the best batting option is. Who's going to score you the most runs? Uh, that, that's who I'd go for. I know some people think, oh, we need a few overs out of someone. Um, so you know, do we go for an all-round type player? For me, it's like, okay, who's going to score the most runs? And if you look in the last couple of years, um, I think uh, Hilton Cartwright is probably the one that has, that's probably got the best record on paper in first-class cricket. Um, so he can actually help out with the ball as well. So I, I think the selectors might, um, you know, go, go, go down that path. Um, and, and that could be a pretty good option. Um, if, if it was completely up to me, if, if, if out of all those names that you mentioned, the, the, the player that I think is the best batsman, um, and, and obviously, if, you know, if he's playing well, is, is probably Sean Marsh, whose record is, is pretty good in the last year or two as well in first-class cricket. I think um, he's probably the one that uh, is the, the, the quality player out of all those guys. Hilton Cartwright has had a couple of opportunities in Test cricket, and um, and and look, you know, he's, he's done well. His first-class record's good. So, as I said, I think that's the way the selectors will go. But I think out of all those guys you've mentioned, um, Sean Marsh is probably the the, the quality, uh, the best batsman out of all of those guys. Do you think a couple of things holding back Sean Marsh would be, one, his age, and two, that his injury history? Because it's been a while since he's got through a test series uh, fully fit. 
Yeah, well, they're, they're all things um, that you can that, that I'm sure would cause a lot of arguments. You know, um, yeah, you, they can talk about you know he's been given opportunities before. Um, yeah, he's had hamstring problems along the way. Uh, th- to me, they're all external things. At the moment, he's playing really well. He, he had an excellent JLT series. He started the Sheffield Shield season uh, well also. Um, so I'm just going on who, who I think is the best batsman um, and batting the best at the moment. And, and in my mind, that's, that's Sean Marsh. But there's other things to consider, you know, and, and then that cause a lot of discussion, like the things that you've mentioned there, age, um, uh, injury, uh, can he, can he uh, contribute with the ball, uh, you know, so, so they're things we can argue about. But um, for me, I want to show up the batting as much as we possibly can. Are you not concerned at all about the fast bowling depth at the moment with Nathan Coulternell going down, James Pattinson going down, Jason Berendorf is missing the latest round of Shield matches because of back soreness? Is there any uh, thinking that they pick up an all-rounder at number six or a batter that can bowl a little bit to relieve some of the pressure and some of the workload off the fast bowlers of Stark, Hayeswood and Cummins just to get them through because there's so much pressure and there's going to be so much on those three quicks to deliver and to deliver for most of the series. Yeah, I, I, I know it's a, it is a bit of a concern, I guess, that depth, but I, I, I'm all about trying to win this first test match. So I, I just want to pick the best possible team um, available um, to, to win the test. And, and if that means picking six best batsmen, your wicketkeeper and your four best bowlers, um, let's go all out to win this test. Um, I don't like to look too far ahead. You know, like if, if we lose the first two or three uh, test matches by... You know, trying to rest a guy here or, you know, not play quite play our best team because we're worried about one guy getting through. Let, let's pick our best possible team um, to win the first test, then the second test, and then the third, and then you don't actually have to worry about, um, you know, the fourth or the fifth test uh, as much as, as far as... You, you can't be picking teams worried that, you know, he might break down in, in test number three if, you know, if he doesn't have, a, you know, uh, an extra five overs off or something like that. I, I don't think that's the way you should go about picking the teams you just got to pick who's the best available at the time. If we do happen to get a couple of injuries along the way, then, you know, so be it. Um, and then we'll just try and deal with that then. But um, I, I personally don't think there's any point in, 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 in worrying about looking too far ahead at this stage. I think all we can really do is focus on this first test of the Gabba. One spot lower and number seven will be the wicketkeeper, and that's another position that's up in the air. Matthew Wade, Peter Neville, Alex Carey from South Australia, they seem to be the leading contenders. Tim Payne also has played for Cricket Australia 11 and is playing for Tasmania in the JLT Sheffield Shield. Mike, which way do you think the selectors will go for the Gloveman? <laughs> I don't know which way the selectors are going to go. <laughs> um, uh, for, for me personally, I'll... I thought, I think, again, we just need to go for the best wicketkeeper. Um, who, who's got the best gloves? Uh, um, who's best with the gloves? Who's going to take the most chances? Because um, that's, that's their first and foremost job in the team. Um, if you're looking at the, you know, the, the, the coaches and selectors have been speaking about that they need to give runs as well, and, and that's fine and that's fair enough. Um, none of the contenders have really been banging down the door with runs on the board. Um, Personally, I thought they were a little bit premature in dropping um, Peter Neville. I thought he was the best keeper at the time. Um, so I didn't probably agree with that sort of uh, that selection choice at the time. But now that they've made that choice and brought in Matthew Wade, um, I, I personally think they should stick with the incumbent. You know, give, give him, give, show him a bit of faith and a bit of belief in him and, uh, and hope that he can return that uh, to one, one with his keeping, but also, also by making some handy runs as well. So... I'd personally probably stick with Matthew Wade. 
One of the big reasons why Wade was picked was because of his batting and because of the niggle and his talk behind the stumps and his leadership. Mike, when you're out there fielding and the wicketkeeper was loud and aggressive and in the batsman's grill, uh, did that spur you guys on? Was that a, a huge benefit for the fielding side? Well, for me personally, no. Um, but obviously for, for some players in the team at the moment, it is. Um, that they, they want that energy behind the stumps. Maybe there's a few other quieter guys around that um, they feel like they need um, that, but I, I'm sure they could have spoken to Peter Neville about that and said, "Look, we need more from you in, in that sort of respect, um, and all that part of the game before um, you know uh, showing him the door." So, for, for me personally, I just want the guy who's going to be the best behind the stumps, take every single catch, make every stumping. You know, um, that, that's the person that I would want behind the stump. What about Matt Renshaw? Mike, he's had a pretty tame start to the summer with the bat, but he's had a pretty good start to his international career. Ten test matches, those four at home last summer were very impressive and he's battled hard on those wickets in the subcontinent. A little bit of pressure around him, but would you like to see him out there for that first test? Oh, I, I would, yes. Uh, I, I, look, i am probably been in his shoes before. You just At the start of the summer, you've got to remember he's still a young guy um, and just you know, starting off his international career. And he's probably desperate to be involved in this Ashes series and desperate to do really well. So sometimes coming into the, you know, you've got these three Sheffield Shield games before the summer starts. You're just, you're almost thinking a little bit too far ahead at the Ashes and, and just needs to just try and relax a bit, get that first score under his belt, um, you know, in, in whatever, uh, whether it's Shield game or, or, the, or the test match, and then he can just relax and just go away and play. But sometimes you just get so... You know, you just caught up in, you know, in, in the hype and, and just so desperate to do well that sometimes the harder you try, the worse you go. And, and I just sort of, you know, I don't know, but I, I sort of get the feeling that he just needs to just relax a bit, just just go out there and play and enjoy and play his way and then hopefully the runs will come. Once he gets that first score under his belt, then hopefully he can just relax and, and then the runs will flow from there. Mike, you played with a fairly impressive Ashes attack in 2006-07, McGrath, Lee, Clark and a bloke called Shane Warne. Um, what do you make of this attack with Stark, Hayeswood, Cummins and Nathan Lyon? On paper, it looks mightily impressive. Yeah, very impressive. Uh, and, and, you know, they all look like they're bowling quite well as well. Obviously, Mitchell Stark's been in, in uh, amazing form. Getting two hat-tricks in the last Shield game um, is pretty impressive. And uh, Pat Cummins, it's good to see him fit and firing uh, and, and, and playing well. Uh, it's good. Uh, um and, and Josh Hazelwood, well, he's just a star, you know, and, and I think it's important. He's probably the key bowler in that attack, you know, someone that can just come in and bowl nice and tight, be very disciplined, um, keep the scoring rate low, and then you can look to really attack with Stark and Cummins. And then, obviously, Nathan Lyon's done a great job for Australia for a long period of time now, and he, he'll be very important for a variety of roles as well. You know, the, the holding role, um, uh, keeping things tight, but then also if the conditions present, then look to attack to take wickets against the English, you know, particularly the left-handers, but he bowls well to the right-handers as well. So I think it's a nicely balanced attack. I think they'll really look to go hard at some of the inexperienced um, in top order and then also really look to go hard at the tail and make them feel really uncomfortable. And, and that's where you know Stark has obviously shown that he can really come into his own and, and pick up wickets really quickly, um, which will be important. All right, now it's time to put your slightest cap on, Mike, and you've got to tell us your first test 11. I think you've pretty much given it to us, but let's read it out from 1 to 11. <laughs> okay, uh, well, we're going to go for Warner and Renshaw, uh, Kawaja at 3, Steve Smith at 4, uh, Peter Hanscom 5. Um, I think we're going to go for Hilton Cartwright at 6. Tough one, him and Sean Marsh, but I think I'm just going to err on the Hilton Cartwright side. Seven, I'm going to go for the wicketkeeper. I'm going to stick with Matthew Wade, show a bit of faith in him. 
and then we've got eight, nine, ten, eleven. So we've got Stark, Cummins, Hazelwood, and Lyon. Twelfth man. I don't know. You can have Sean Marsh there. You can have Jackson Bird in case something happens to a fast bowler in the lead up. Um, but that's pretty much my eleven. And one off the top of your head, Mike, uh, in 2013-14 when Australia whitewashed England, they had the same 11 for five test matches. How many changes do you think will be in the Australian 11 from the first test to the fifth test? So look ahead, Sydney, SEG, who knows what the scoreline's going to be. How many changes do you think will be in that in that team from the one that plays at the Gabba? <laughs> Well, it, it obviously depends on how things are going. If Australia plays well and everyone stays fit, then hopefully there's no changes whatsoever. Um, but that, in, in my mind, that's the secret to um, good, consistent success in a, in a team by showing, having continuity, showing faith in the players, um, the players that are doing well, reward them and, and stick with them for as long as you possibly can. So, uh, obviously, if, if everyone stays fit, which is what we want, then I'm, I'm hoping for no changes whatsoever. I guess. The, the current climate, the, the selectors have been um, uh, happy to you know chop and change things and, and be a bit horses for courses. Uh, so I don't know if they'll still go down that path. But but if it, yeah, if it was up to me, I, I'm happy to stick with the same the same group as long as obviously they're they're doing the job. All right, let's have a look at, at the English. And before we start looking at some of their concerns, Mike, let's talk about some of their strengths. And I reckon it starts right in the middle there with Joe Root, who is, if not one of the top four batsmen in the world. He is number one. Yeah, he's, he's a, yeah, obviously a quality player. Um, it, it's going to be a huge series for him. Uh, obviously, every, everyone in the England camp are going to be looking to him to, to lead the way with the bat, uh, score heaps of runs, captain well. He's, he's only still a new captain of England as well, so having that pressure on him as well in Australian conditions, it's, it's going to be a huge challenge for him. And um, it, it might be the making of him, really. He's already, obviously, very well respected around the world. But these are the sort, the sort of series, particularly as a captain, that you you really want to stamp your uh, authority on on the whole, you know, on world cricket, I guess. And um, you know, if he has a great series for England, then obviously it'll give them a big chance of of going well in the series. But also the respect he will get from his peers around the world will just go through the roof. So um, I'm sure he's hugely motivated to do extremely well. Uh, he seems mentally like the kind of guy that can handle all the pressure and stress. I guess he found it difficult in, last time he was in Australian conditions, so it'll be interesting to see how much he's learnt from from that previous tour where he did find uh, you know quite challenging um, to, to see what he's put in place to uh, to obviously adapt and, uh, and and perform well this time. So still, still a lot of questions to see how he's going to go, but, but you know, as you mentioned, he's a quality player and, um, and, and we expect him, I guess, to do quite well. England had a bit of problem with their batting order opener three number five but the real engine room of that side which has been successful in the past couple of years has been that lower order with the likes of Johnny Bairstow, Moen Alley and Ben Stokes and even a little bit lower with Chris Wokes there as well. Just how important is it for those guys to fire in the ashes Mike because if they don't perform and there's a misfiring in top water there could be some low totals by the tourists. <laughs> well from an Australian perspective we hope so but uh, yeah you're right there's, uh, there's some really quality players coming in through that middle order but I guess from an England perspective that then they need that top order to at least get some you know decent starts on the board first before those guys come in like those guys coming in later in the order can be very damaging you know on a good pitch with tiring attack and uh, they can score quickly and take the way uh, the game away from Australia but if they're coming in you know five for a hundred or you know four for eighty or you know six six for 150 or something like that and under enormous pressure, then it's a different game altogether. So 
you know, England, I think where they've really got to try and knuckle down is in that top order. You know, the top four or five players have to do the job, really set a good platform for the likes of those middle order guys to come in and, re- and really dominate from there. So I'm looking more at how the likes of Vince and Stoneman and Milan are going to go. You know, their first time in Australian conditions uh, in, in an Ashes series where the hype is huge, um, quick bowlers coming in, steaming in hard at you. Um, how they cope with that, it could be the difference between how England go in this series and or winning the series and, 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 and losing the series. So, you know, we're going to find out a lot about these, um, I guess, unsung uh, players at this stage from England. Kerry O'Keefe, uh, fantastic commentator and probably an underappreciated analyst of, of cricket. He watches a lot of footage. He was saying uh, earlier this week that he's looked at a lot of the techniques of the England players and he just thinks they're all slow, low wicket techniques. They play with soft hands. They can't handle the fast, bouncy wickets in Australia, especially the likes of Vince Milan and, and Gary Balance. Mike, when you look at those batters, what do you see? No, I'm sure they're I'm sure they're all very good players. You know, you don't get to get picked for the England team uh, in an Ashes series if you can't play. So they've got some uh, quality behind them. Um, yeah, it's going to be a challenge for them. They will be used to playing in more of the English conditions where the pitches are slower. They're definitely lower. Um, they seem around a little bit more, so you have to play a lot later and with softer hands and, and, as you mentioned, quite low hands as well. But in Australia, it's a bit different. Things happen a lot quicker. Um, yeah, the ball will bounce a lot more. Um, if there's any movement, it'll, it'll happen quickly as well. So you don't have time to adjust like you can in England. So that, that's where, for me, is going to be the challenge for those guys is, is how quickly can they adjust to Australian conditions? And, and, and you know, they, they, haven't, they haven't really had, had to do it before in Australian conditions. And to be able to do it in an Ashes series against a quality attack like the Australians have is going to be huge. You know, it's going to be hugely tough for them. So, so that, that's where I think Australia can really um, put some pressure on England because it's, it's tough enough just playing a test match uh, against those bowlers in any conditions. But you do it in Australian conditions in an Ashes series, um, it, it just goes up another notch as well. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's going to be tough for those guys, no question. You were on deck when, you, when Alistair Cook scored about 6,000 runs in a five-match series in 2010-11. <laughs> uh, I actually watched those games in person and it was brutal to watch. Mike, yeah, he's had a little being out in the field. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Uh, he's had a bit of a tough start to the tour down under, but he's a class player. Is there any concerns around Cook and how he's going to perform this summer? Well, I think I think in his own mind, he'll be a little bit concerned. Um, just just you just like to get into a new country, get into the conditions as quick as you can. Uh, like like with Renshaw, you just want to get that first score under the belt so you feel like your feet are moving well, you're seeing the ball clearly, you're, you're finding the middle of the bat and you're feeling confident with your game and, and you can just relax. And until you get that first score, really substantial score under your belt, you, you, you don't fully relax. And so I'm sure he's a little bit tense in his mind and, and his body, um, but he's been in this situation before. He's scored runs in Australia before, which is important. And so I'm sure he'll be draw, drawing on all that experience and all that knowledge um, and, yeah, you, you certainly cannot write off a champion like uh, Alistair Cook. Um, yeah, he, he is a champion player. He's done it before. And if he gets his confidence up early in the series, then he will be very, very hard to stop. But if Australia can get on top of him early, then that's when the, the doubts and the anxiety really start to build up. So a, a key test match will be that Gabba test, um, how Alistair Cook goes. It, it could really set his tone for, the, for, the, for his whole series. What are his weaknesses, Mike? It seems like the Australians have done pretty well since that 2010-11 series bowling that, that channel outside off stump, not giving him any width, nothing on his pads. Uh, how do you target a, a guy like Alistair Cook? Well, 
you got to keep it pretty simple, really. Um, like you mentioned there, okay, you don't bowl short and wide. Well, you don't really bowl short and wide to anyone. You don't bowl <laughs> on the pads. Well, you shouldn't really bowl on the pads to anyone. You've you got to keep it pretty simple and just honing in on a good line and length. With quality players, that, that, that's what they do so well. They, they keep out that good ball, but then as soon as you're off, they'll put you away for four. Um, and, and that's what Alistair Cook's done so well over a long period of time. He's very, very disciplined. So he will, he's more than happy to be patient and wait for you to just to stray off your line and length a little bit, and, uh, and that's when he'll pick you off. Um, but what, the Australian, what, what a lot of the English players do is they like to play the ball really late. They sort of don't, don't come forward a long way. So, um, you know, they like to play the ball from the crease and, and play with soft hands. So what the Australian teams generally like to do is really pitch the ball up, get the English guys looking to drive down the ground. And um, if, same with Alistair Cook. If you can get him playing um, drives towards mid-off, then you feel like you're in the game because he doesn't get a long way forward. If there's any movement at all, you can maybe um, bring the slips into play. And um, he's, he's probably not as strong hitting down the ground as he is, you know, on the pull shot, the cut shot. And, and you know, off his pads as well. So I think the Australians have just got to be very patient, very disciplined, and if you're going to err, just err on the fuller side of things. And just on that 2010-11 series, Mike, uh, being out there, did it look like you were ever going to get Alistair Cook out? He just looked in his own world. He's on a different planet. Yeah, exactly. Exactly right. He, he um, His bat looked really wide. He looked really calm, and he looked uh, in control of his game. As I mentioned, he was just very patient in just keeping out the good balls. The, the, the pitches were excellent for batting which I think helped him as well. But as soon as we strayed, he was on top of his game that he's put us away. And he was, and he, he, I think mentally he was in a great place, looking at that long, long, long periods of time, which he does so well, and he just wore us down. And, um, yeah, he was superb. But, but the thing was, he started the series well. I think he got a good score up in Brizzy, um, and that gave him the confidence in himself that, yep, I've got a good plan, I've got a good strategy, I've got um, a good technique to be able to um, you know, score runs in Australia. And once he had that confidence, he could just go on with it with the whole series. What about England's new ball attack? Mike, James Anderson, Stuart Broad, they've been around for 100 years now. They're the top two wicket-takers <laughs> for England in their entire test history. Uh, they're a formidable duo. James Anderson at the back end of his career, Stuart Broad, got a couple of good years left in him, I reckon. Um, how important is it going to be to get on top of those guys? And are, and are they going to be a threat on their third and fourth Ashes tour down here? Oh, they'll definitely be a threat, and they'll certainly be respected by the Australian batsmen. <clears throat> um, no question about that. They're, yeah, they've proven it. You know, their longevity has been very impressive. Um, I guess the challenge, I guess, is can they get the ball to move? That, that's, that's where they're at their most dangerous particularly, say, Anderson in English conditions, when he's got that ball moving, he's such a skillful bowler and so accurate. But it has shown in the past, particularly in Australian conditions, on good batting pitches, if he hasn't been able to get that ball to move, then um, he hasn't been as effective. Still still a good bowler, but not as effective as, as possibly in other parts of the world. So he'll be drawing on a lot of his experience and skill, um, probably learning from past lessons in Australia as well to, um, to try and be effective in this series. But you cannot underestimate champion players, and those two are definitely champion players. So uh, just watch out for the Adelaide test. That might be where Anderson could really come into his own. If the conditions are right in Brisbane, it's overcast and swinging around, he could be dangerous there. But Adelaide, that pink ball under lights, he'll be licking his lips in that test match. I don't know we're not looking too far ahead, but just how important is it to get a good result out of Brisbane, not necessarily win, but a draw and be competitive and then go to Adelaide. But that's a test that they will be looking at to try and win, if, especially if Anderson and Broad can get that ball to hoop around under lights. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, well, 
I don't think you can come into a test match just thinking, oh, let's just get a good result, let's just get a draw. You've got to come in thinking you're going to win the test. Um, but you've got, to, you've got to set up a big, solid foundation in that first innings. Try and bat well, get all your batters to spend plenty of time at the crease, get your bowlers bowling nice areas, put some good long spells and feeling comfortable with where they're going. And then hopefully, yeah, as you say, you get yourself into a position to win the test. But if you can't, then, yeah, do everything you can to just get away with the draw from an England perspective in that first test match. And, uh, and then, yeah, go to Adelaide. And it's like there's a bit more of an unknown there. That some of their bowlers might enjoy the conditions. Certainly the English batsmen will, possibly could play the moving ball a little bit better than our players because we're not, we're not used to it as much as what they are as well. And, and perhaps that's the one that they've earmarked. Yeah, we can, we can grab that test match and, and really get this series alive. All right, the one player that we haven't spoke about who is causing all the headlines, he isn't even in Australia at the moment, is Ben Stokes. Mike, what's your read on that situation? What's your read on, on where he's at at the moment? And do you expect him to play any part in the Ashes series this summer? Yeah, it's a difficult one. Yeah, it, it seems to have gone pretty quiet on that front. I haven't heard much news about it. Um, I, I think, well, I, I don't know. I'm not, that, I'm not close to it, obviously. But, but in my mind, I think if I was in the England camp, you're wrestling with, with two things. You put, you, the moral decision is, look, you know, the footage looks pretty bad. Uh, he's going to have a lot on his mind with the uh, investigation, all that sort of stuff. Perhaps he's best off just not, not coming at all. Give someone else an opportunity to become an Ashes hero and, and make a name for himself and, and you know, um, yeah, like just leave him back home and, and, and don't worry about it. But on the other hand, he's a quality player. And England are probably looking at their team thinking, for us to win the Ashes, we probably need a Ben Stokes in that team. So that's what I... Well, if I was in there, that's what I'd be wrestling with. The moral decision um, or what's best... You know, what's going to give us the best team on the park. And I think if it was up to me, I'd probably take the moral decision and, and sort of say, look, mate, just stay at home, get yourself sorted out, and then let's give someone else an opportunity. Can they win without him? Well, yes, they can. Um, a lot's going to have to go right. Uh, I think, you know, looking at some of those inexperienced players at the top order, I think probably two of those guys are going to have to have big series. Obviously, Joe Root's going to have to have a big series. Anderson and Broad are going to have to bowl extremely well um, for, for England to, you know, so, so the big players are going to have to play well, but they're going to have to have some of their unheralded players to have excellent series as well. And, and I think Australia are going to have to be a little bit off, um, to be honest, because I think Australia will have to go into the, um, into the series uh, favourites. Mike, thank you very much for your time. We'll speak to you again very soon on the Unplayable Podcast. No worries. Anytime. I look look forward to it. The Commonwealth Bank Women's Ashes Series is alive after the first ever day-night test ended in a draw at North Sydney Oval. England won the toss, batted first and made 280 in about three and a half sessions. Tammy Beaumont made 70, skipper had the night 62 and Elise Perry picked up three wickets. In reply, the Australians were in strife at four for 95 before Perry rewrote the history books with an incredible 213 not out. The highest ever women's Ashes score and the most by an Australian in women's tests. Perry was supported by Rachel Haynes, Alyssa Healy and Talia McGrath as Australia posted nine for 448 declared. On a benign pitch, Australia could only manage two second innings England wickets as Knight posted an unbeaten 79 to guide her side to a draw. More than 12,000 fans attended the four days while hundreds of thousands watched the live stream all around the world. It means Australia now need just one win from the final three T20 internationals to retain the Ashes while England need to sweep the series to reclaim the trophy. We spoke to Isha Gua on the Monday after the match and started by asking her what she made of the landmark test. Um, well, I just think 
yeah, it was a wonderful spectacle for for the women's game in terms of getting people into the ground. We had over 12,000 uh, for the four-day period, and Elise Perry was obviously the standout with a double century, the highest individual score in um, in Ashes history, but also for a female Australian player, uh, and just an incredible um, atmosphere around uh, what was a tough few days of cricket for both sets of players. Um, I think the pitch won. Uh, it was fairly placid, didn't really change too much over the course of the four days. What um, brought some extra excitement was the fact that it was a day-night test and uh, in the evenings we were getting some, some moisture in the pitch and, and the ball was doing a little bit, which was always a, a fun session of play. So um, I think you know both, both teams battled hard. England... If they're completely honest, should have scored more in the first innings. Um, you know, there were a couple of decisions that didn't go their way. Heather Knight absolutely was on for a hundred, and I think Australia battled hard, fought back well. Um, both sets of openers started quite slowly, um, but I think you know when you when you look at how many tests these girls play, uh, you know you can understand them being a bit tentative early on and just getting a gauge of how the pitch is playing. Um, but also making sure that they don't lose. So Australia got themselves into a position where they couldn't lose and, and obviously firmly in front um, coming into the fourth day after two even days, I think, first first two. Uh, but the final day, yeah, um, you know, England were up against it, but they, they fought back well. Let's go back to, to day one. And Matthew Mott's come out and said that England didn't really look like they were going to um, try and win the game. There wasn't that intent there. Do you read into that or was it just... Like you said, these players who haven't played a lot of test cricket finding their feet and finding a way to bat in test match cricket. Yeah, I think mind games because when you look at the way Australia batted as well, um, you know, they weren't exactly going along at four runs and over. So um, I'm not, you know, I think it was dictated a lot by the pitch as well. Um, there was a period when Elise Perry and Tali McGraw were in where actually I thought they could have maybe up the rate or... I thought they might have done, but I think England defended really well at that stage and, and contained as much as they possibly could. But that, that, I think that was a key moment where Australia could have got a few extra runs and put themselves into a, a, an even better position to, to try and win the game. Um, as it was, the pitch, like I said, just didn't do too much. The, the biggest threat was probably Amanda J. Wellington um, and the ball to get Tammy Beaumont was an absolute ripper of a delivery. Um, but I think... From her point of view, just a wonderful learning experience. When she bowled that ball, she probably felt she could bowl another nine um, to, to get rid of the English batters. So um, I think, yeah, she was probably the main threat uh, and and England were able to negotiate um, a couple of spells from Perry and, and make Megan shoot with a new ball. Just on Perry, obviously the best knock in Australia, one of the best knocks of all time. Just what about that innings and about Perry makes us so good? I think just the, the sheer determination that she had um, and the incredible levels of concentration. She batted for eight hours and I think she played a false shot to maybe 12 of the 350 deliveries that she faced, which is obviously more than anyone else in the test match. So um, I think, yeah, just purely from that point of view, the fact that she opens the bowling and bats at four, I, I did wonder ahead of the test whether she'd be able to cope with that, but... She's obviously, uh, if there's anyone that can do it, it's her. Um, you know, these girls pride themselves on their fitness, both sets of players, and she's obviously someone that can uh, can last quite long out in the middle. So um, I think from that point of view, yeah, that that's why it was such a special knock. 
in terms of overall, you know, they're going to do comparisons and rank players. Where do you think Perry's going to end up? She's done so much at only 26. Where do you think she's going to sort of sit in that echelon of, of female cricketers? Well, I think that's that's the thing. She has done so much by this stage. Um, she's got so so much time left ahead of her. And now that she's batting up the order and she's getting those opportunities now to, to showcase what she's all about. And, um, I mean, we, we had a look over the course of the four days as to who, you know, who had done well in Ash's in Ash's history but also um, just in general across the course of test matches uh, and she's absolutely up there and you know she's slowly rising on the, the one day um, list as well in terms of wickets taken but also the number of runs she scored in the last couple of years is, is phenomenal um, three times she scored five consecutive 50s which is just ridiculous um, and you know, as long as she stays fit, she'll absolutely go down as one of the best players that has ever played for Australia. Heather Knight's had a, a great series, uh, leading from the front with the bat and, and the field. What have you made of her uh, four games and series in general? Yeah, I mean, Heather's obviously a close friend of mine anyway, but I've I've just been so impressed by the way she's handled everything in the last year or so. She took over the captaincy. You know, it's quite big shoes to fill. Charlotte Edwards, who'd captained for ten years. Um, and in circumstances where there would have been a bit of scrutiny um, and in, the, in this professional era, you know, the girls are criticised and they're talked about a lot more. So having to deal with that and expectation, I think she's led the side really well. Um, she's obviously got the, the respect of her teammates and um, someone who tends to stand up when the side needs her to. When you think about the, the World Cup. England going in not as favourites, um, losing that first game though to India on the on the big stage where the whole world was watching. Um, Sachin Tendulkar was commentary tweeting um, for for England to come back the way they did, and she scored a maiden century as well, um, and then led the side to brilliant victory at Lords. Um, she had to carefully think about who she was going to bowl at different times in that second innings um, where England were right up against it. I think she's handled herself really well and um, coming out to Australia as well now. Um, she's, she's battled hard. I think she might have hurt, injured herself in the first game and um, to be able to come back third game when again their, their backs were against the wall, um, lead from the front, score runs and help her side to a, to a win to keep them in the series. It just um, highlights exactly what type of character she is and someone who you know not afraid to to evolve as a player um, when you think about the fact that she's kind of sta- changed her stance and her, uh, her setup ahead of this particular series quite a big series <laughs> to change her setup um, and she's you know been able to be successful with that yesterday again um, a situation that demanded her to to be the leader um, out in the middle with the runs she she uh, she performed. So England need to win three T20s in a row. Isha, break the news for us. Give us an exclusive. Can they do it? Will they do it? How are they going to do it? Mm, they can do it. Um, I haven't quite decided how they're going to do it, whether they're going to just try and bat first because I know that they can defend well um, or whether we're better suited knowing what, a good, what, what the score is that we have to chase. Um, it's a hard one. I think... Uh, quite even I think perhaps Australia have a slight edge over England in terms of the power hitting Um, but I would back England as well um, in a 2020 game because there is enough experience there in 2020 cricket and um, 
I think it's going to be exciting. I, I just, I really don't know how it's going to go. Obviously, they need they need to win every game. Whether they can do that or not is going to be obviously a big stretch. But I think I think they can. Now you shared the commentary box at North Sydney Oval with a couple of Aussies and Charlotte Edwards. What was it like being in that all-female commentary team on the live stream on cricket.com.au and the CLI? I've got to get that plug in there. But what was it like up there with the other three girls? Uh, it was a brilliant team to be part of. And I've obviously worked with Mel and Lisa a, a fair bit um, over the years and, and Charlotte now as well. But we haven't, we've rarely got together as a group. Um, I think the last time we all got together was probably the last Ashes um, obviously Lottie was playing but it was just great to, to have that banter um, between us uh, everyone worked so hard because um, resources wise um, that p- people were stretched so we obviously had to do as much as we possibly could to try and help the broadcast and I think it was so important to get past players involved um, and, and talk about the past because I guess not many people tuning in would have known much about the history of the women's tests um, and you know there were some some periods of time there that were a bit slow, you know. <laughs> uh, when it when it comes to like dotting out quite a few overs, um, you know it was it was nice to go off on tangents here and there. Uh, Lisa talked way too much about her cooking. <laughs> uh, Lottie just didn't want to talk about herself at all, and uh, Mel was the, the ultimate pro as always. So um, yeah, it was it was good fun. Just the whole event and the fact that there was a, an all-female commentary team and the, the stream was broadcast into the UK on, on uh, BT Sport on one of their main channels. Just how far has the women's game come and how much further can it go? Well, there's no boundaries, are there? Uh, I think the women's game can continue to flourish. I think we need to absolutely latch on to the fact that this is a really good time for, for women in sport and... Um, the fact that you know it is generating interest but also commercial interest and I just I was just so uh, privileged to be um, involved in the recent Women's World Cup you just felt everyone was pulling together in the same direction from the broadcasters point of view from the governing bodies and and the ICC who obviously oversee the event Um, people the volunteers that turned up at the grounds but um, it was a case of, right, we're going to broadcast every game. Um, let's see what you can do. And the girls absolutely delivered. Um, I thought it was women's cricket turning a corner in terms of power hitting. Um, and it and it really just felt like the dawn of a new era. And great to see so many countries as well improving. Um, so Pakistan, although, you know, they probably would have wanted to, to do better. I think actually they showed um, signs of improvement. Um, Sri Lanka um, had a, a lovely story in Chamari Atapatu and that fabulous knock against Australia. <laughs> I knew you'd say that. Um, Australia losing in the semi-finals to <laughs> India to that ridiculous knock from Harman Preet Kaur, uh, which is probably one of the best innings I've ever seen, I have to say. Um, and that's what it took to beat Australia. Yeah. Um, so so many so many stories to to mention really throughout the course of the tournament and that final obviously being watched by 27,000 at Laws Full House and 180 million around the world it just tells you exactly where the women's game is at right now and just need to keep building on it. India choked in the final. It's not giving England the win. Is that right? <laughs> well, yeah, we uh, we were up against it for sure, but it was the fact that England played on that um, that spell from Anya was was brilliant. 
she's a, a world-class player um, perhaps since see her at her best during the test matches so um, it's it's on to the T20s and I think she'll have a big role to play Right, you're gonna. You're not done with the women's ashes. You're gonna do stick around for the men's Magellan ashes, and you're gonna be with Triple M this summer. Uh, how excited are you to get in there, cover the, the men's ashes, with a pretty exciting and diverse commentary team? That's exactly right. I mean, it's it's a different type of broadcast. <laughs> it's pretty loose, um, but great fun. Uh, the guys made me feel really welcome last year. I'm looking forward to working with Mark War and Adam Gilchrist and. Um, in what is going to be a brilliant series, I think. Um, a lot of people have written England off already, and I'm here to say beware. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I mean, it, it is a case of no one really knows what their best team is, to be honest, and who, who knows how that first test is going to play out. Yes, it, Australia have got a brilliant record there, but um, it is one of those where I think Australia have got some, some chinks... Um, in their armour and I think England just need to expose that Alright we're going to let you go with one last question you got to give us the series scoreline and the player of the series Men or women? The men well, no, the, well, the women's done Australia win that one uh, the, men, <laughs> <laughs> the men's please uh, I'm going 3-1 to England oh. <laughs> No, okay. Maybe maybe it'll be two all. Okay. I think it'll be two all. And player of the series will be either Joe Root or Steve Smith. I reckon. I reckon Joe. Alicia, thank you so much. We look forward to hearing you this summer. Thank you very much. (laughs) That's it for this week's episode. We'll be back on Friday with an unplayable podcast special to analyse Australia's squad for the first test in Brisbane. But until then. Rate, subscribe and review the Unplayable Podcast on iTunes. Download it on Spotify and head to cricket.com.au for the live and free stream of the JLT Sheffield Shield. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit Juvederm.com.